Good morning. It's good to be with you again and to be in God's house and uh, also trust you're not distracted but encouraged by all this energy around us hanging on the walls and in back of us. When I went to Bible school, we didn't have any of that kind of stuff. And so uh, all of these kind of visuals to stimulate uh, the kids, uh, uh, their minds and whatnot is uh, certainly a plus. In a minute here, I'm going to have uh, Jim come and uh, read uh, the scripture for us. But um, uh, about a month ago, Gibson had put out to a number of the elders to uh, a number of themes for us to preach on. And uh, anyway, this uh, the the subject of of speech and words was one, and so I volunteered to take that. But I had no idea the vastness and the book and the book of Proverbs uh, on that whole subject and uh, it's basically going to be impossible for us to address all of that and so there's a piece of it that uh, I'm going to talk about this morning. Just an opening illustration about uh, two or three months ago uh, I had trouble with my iPad and my phone which are connected together and uh, my kids as well as my grandkids were not able to fix it and so I needed to make a trip to Willow Grove to the mall to the, I, uh, to the Apple store to get that done. I had only ever been there one other time and I tried to figure out when it was and it was probably 20 years ago that I had been in the Willow Grove mall but I remembered something of that trip 20 years ago up on the third floor of the mall in a bookstore and I often like to page through and look at posters that are there for sale and this one was there and I have never forgotten this message it message and it went like this words are powerful they were meant to heal and not harm never forgotten that and I wish I would have bought that poster and uh, had that message but it all came back to me as I walked into that mall of all the things and hardly about 20 years ago that uh, that picture came in so as I was reading throughout the uh, uh, Proverbs on all of the Proverbs that speak to words to speaking words, listening to words, not listening to words, not listening to words of wisdom, and all of that wide variety of things. It also took me to James 3, and I'm going to have Jim come and read that for us now. And uh, if uh, we could get that mic on here for Jim and uh, to read out of uh, James 3 for us. Use that one there. Is this on? It's on. Well, if uh, you're feeling like you're really walking uh, great in the spirit and doing everything right in your journey, uh, and you might be good concerned about that, then uh, I recommend you pick up the book of James because uh, he'll, he'll have your attitude adjustment very quickly. So from our brother James, chapter 3. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able, to, able also to bridle his whole body. 
If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is God's word. Thank you, Jim, for sharing that and notice in the beginning, the personal pronouns that are mentioned, all and anyone, were all today indicted under this thing. And our speech is what exposes us. And so as we dig into this today, I don't want anybody to sit on the edge somewhere. And in some way, hopefully, we're going to draw you into it in, in some way to, to help you and encourage you in your journey. Let's pray together. Lord, we give you thanks for your word today. We thank you for ancient words that have been spoken in the past. As we think of Solomon who reflected and listened and listened to speech that was there and saw people who didn't pay attention to speech. And he himself, as he learned under the tutoring of his own dad there, I pray, Lord, that we today would be encouraged, look into our hearts and our souls as we listen to your word today. I ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. I grew up in Hatfield Township, and uh, in first grade, it was the first year I went to school, I went to the E.B. Loggenslager School, which is, was the formerly Hatfield Biblical Seminary. I went there till halfway through third grade, and by that time the A.M. Culp School on the lower end of Hatfield was built, and I was 
chosen because we lived on the lower end of the railroad tracks in town to go there. In uh, fifth grade, after I completed fourth grade, at fifth grade, my parents chose to send me to FMS, which was Franconia Mennonite Day School, which has become Penview Christian School and now is a part of Doc Academy. And I share that as a background as when I got into seventh grade, and it was a time in junior high where I wasn't doing well in school. I was distracted by a number of things. But one time when in the course of that year, which we brought report cards home four times a year, there was a note written on the back of my report card, and it went like this. And after 50-some, over 50 years, I can remember it with clarity. And preparing for this message brought this up for me, and it went like this. There has come a report from the playground that Larry is using unchristian speech. Bingo. I had about, at that time, about a 40, 45 minute bus road ride home from school. And believe me, I was sweating to bring that report card into my home. A Christian home coming from a Christian school. I checked with my mom if I could share this story, and she was the first one to see that. And I don't remember her becoming overly uh, uh, excited about that, other than saying, your dad is going to have to tend to that with you. (laughs) And not paying a lot of time to my schoolwork, that night I was incredibly diligent in my room, working at my homework. And eventually, my dad, certain days of the week, came home later, and I remember hearing his footsteps coming up the steps. My bedroom had a long hallway to it, and hearing him in. And as I was thinking about that, I don't have a lot of memories of how that conversation went, but I know it was, I I chose to be very honest about it. And my dad was somewhat gracious with me about it. And I tried to reflect on why that may have been. But he may have been honest, even though I never heard my dad swear or use bad language. There was words that we were not allowed to use at all in our home, and I never heard my dad use those words. However, I believe that possibly maybe my dad got in tune with his own internal language at times and was gracious with me. And... uh, That's really all I have in my memories of that situation. But anyway, that whole story came back to my mind as I was preparing for this. Just a summary, a number of summaries here, uh, summary facts about speech here in Proverbs. The subject of speech in one form or another, and I did a survey of chapters 10 through 30, And the subject of speech, or listening to speech, or speaking speech, positive speech, negative speech, not listening to wise speech, or whatever, is mentioned over 450 times. And so it's a very important subject that Solomon was looking at. Good speech, foolish speech, and as I said, listening to and understanding words that are spoken or the lack of listening to wide words that are spoken. 
And I need to make a confession. I've been working on this for about four weeks, and my own speech has been challenged and called into question. And I want to affirm Gibson's formula that he gave us when we started this is to just begin reading Proverbs. And it's amazing. And the ones that will stick with you, hang on to them and work at it. And your daily life experience is going to bring them up for you as homework to begin working in any area for you. But the bottom line, what James is saying in many of the Proverbs and in the broad sense of the word, is that words matter. And if you've got your own personal Bible there in front of you, write that phrase down somewhere in the book of, on the margin of the thing, is that words matter. And that we can be reckless in the way that we use them. They can hurt, and they can damage, they can offend, and intentionally and unintentionally as they are used, but they also, words have the power to encourage. They have the power to mentor. They have the power to instruct and to heal, restore, and renew. Words are incredibly powerful. I wrote in my notes, and I didn't particularly follow through with this, but I thought that I would maybe yesterday run out to Home Depot and buy a grounding rod. Those of you who are electricians, and we have a number of them here in our church, would know exactly what I'm talking about. And a grounding rod is a long steel rod, possibly about four feet long, which in the basement of every one of your houses or right near your electrical panel, the electrician who installed your household electric drove a grounding rod deep into the ground or near your electrical panel and all of the green wires in your whole house out of all of your receptacles and light switches and appliances, the grounding wires are in some way mysteriously all connected and are all anchored down into the grounding rod. And as I thought of some words and some language and phrases that we hear, that they need to just plain be grounded. We just need to end with us and not be repeated and, 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 not, uh, and, and just be driven into the ground. It's just one illustration of, of language and words. So as we talk about words and speech, I have a couple observation that there is a close connection. If you look at these 400 and plus Proverbs that have been written, there is a close connection with emotion and speech. When emotions get tied in with words and language and phrases, words like anger, rage, frustration, disappointment, are injected into words and speech. They have a potential to elevate the nature of their meaning and their destructiveness. And much of this is linked to the fool. And a couple of weeks ago, when we had our outdoor service, Gibson talked a lot about the fool and his language and words are associated, particularly negative words, are linked to the fool. Another whole set of destructive words that are fueled with emotion are words of envy. And there's many of those in the, in the Proverbs, in the chapters 10 through uh, 
10 through 30, and they're the ones that I focused on. Uh, uh, but when envy is used as compared to words of gratitude and appreciation, and when we, when we hear those words, they continue to speak and repeat themselves to, uh, to us in our minds of memory. Words of encouragement, fitly spoken at the right time and in the right setting, continue to speak to us in dark times. Just an illustration, a couple weeks ago, somebody here from Ridgeline at our fellowship dinner, who I have not had a lot of personal conversation with, engaged me in an encouraging conversation. That spoken word has continued to speak to me over and over and given me, uh, given me uh, uh, thoughts of, a, of, a, of encouragement as, I, as they go over and over in my mind. But here's one of the uh, big things that I want, want to share here is that truth words, truth words can be painful as we hear them and often are, they are difficult to hear. At the same time, they need to be said to us. We need to hear them. We need to hear them from other people, sometimes people who are close to us. But as they are he heard, they need not be hurtful or nasty or damaging. And there's a difference between that. Truth words are painful to hear at times, but the intent is not that they're nasty, but they often feel that way to us. And so we give pushback right away when we hear those kinds of words and we create another level of conflict when... Uh, when somebody is trying to be honest with us and be truthful with us and speak truth words. So it takes what I call an open affect to hear words of instruction. It's an open internal kind of submission and humility that is teachable. It's open to learn. And this is highlighted in many of the Proverbs about listening and learning from teaching, teaching or mentoring speech or parental speech. And, and uh, the phrase that is used is father teaching son. Solomon used those words a lot. A bit about emotions. The Bible is filled with illustration and stories about words and deeds that flow out of a negative but real emotions that lead to destructive acts. And a few minutes, we're going to look at a few examples of that uh, in the biblical narrative about speech that has gone wrong in certain stories. In an overall summary of the book of Proverbs, gives Proverbs give descriptive sim symptoms of negative speech and in proverbial settings sayings and settings, often comparing them or paradoxing them with the potential for good speech. In other words, there's examples of bad speech, but then they're used in comparison to good speech and the outcome then that com can come from that, or vice versa. It's negative speech versus good speech, and then a, po uh, and then a bad outcome that can come. All of those dynamics are are played back and forth. But we also see that negative speech doesn't just flow off our lips. But Proverbs 
Jesus in the Gospels, particularly in chapter 5 of the Sermon on the Mount, and also James notes, as Jim has read to us, that negative speech flows out of a source of evil that lies within us. It's our unregenerate heart. Our tongue and our lips are only expressing what is really lodged in our hearts and the consequences that it brings, and in some cases, it's deadly. Words can kill in different kinds of ways. And for those of us who are Christians, it's part of our old life that dogs us. And, and we live in the ongoing process of sanctification. And in the first 17 uh, verses of chapter 8 of Romans describes the contrast with life and in the spirit, uh, life in the spirit and our old life in the flesh. And it's just an ongoing battle in which we live. And if we, and if we live in, in that with integrity, God continues to work in our life and God continues to bring renewal and we can shed bad habits and bad language and bad thoughts that come out of our, if we continue to be honoring that process of sanctification that's going on in our lips. And so let me start with a number of them here. I've just picked out some of them and then we're, what we're going to do is look at a couple Old Testament stories and we'll finish with a personal illustration that I'll share from my own life. Proverbs 13.3 He who guards his lips... Just, just think of these carefully and you might want to write these down and just reflect on them later because they're filled with imagery and uh, I want to call attention to that. He who guards his lips guards his life. That's a profound statement right there. He who guards his, lift, uh, guards his lips guards his life, but he who speaks rashly will come to ruin. And I want you to hang on to that word rashly. We're going to pick that up later on. But just think of that and spend some time meditating on that. Spend some time in our culture listening to rash speech. Right now, our culture is just filled with it. A number of years ago, I was doing some work with a counselor, and uh, we had times of just reflecting on, he, he was sharing with me just some of his work and whatnot, and he told me that with the emergence of texting, he said, that has brought me so much business, it's been incredible. And you have probably gotten yourself into problems with a text or texting with a group of people that you weren't sure who was in the text and, and all kinds of stuff like that. And this counselor was sharing with me, he says, that has brought me so much business, it's been incredible. And, uh, and uh, we, we have to guard our lips, guard our thoughts, and uh, we, we speak... I, I, I've been made aware recently of how that when we talk in person with people, we speak in so many ways. Our countenance speak. Our eyes speak words. The tone of our voice speaks. But when we, when we speak via texting, none of those things are present. So all of a sudden, words carry incredible meaning that they maybe not ordinarily would carry. And it's just another whole dynamic. Again, uh, uh, 
growing up in, in my home, as I mentioned, there were certain words that we were not allowed to uh, use. I'm not going to go through that list here today. Some might be inappropriate. Uh, just one that I will share in a general way. We were never allowed to tell anybody in the family to shut up. We just were not allowed to use that, that particular word. And uh, anyway, whenever there was a... Uh, a violation of any of the family rules there was usually enough siblings i grew up with three other siblings there was usually one sibling who would tattletale and we were in trouble and so the response and my mom used to use this and i checked with her to be sure i had her permission to share this is i'm going to wash your mouth out with soap and i don't know how many kids here have had their mouth washed out literally or been threatened to that but that was often but as i thought of that and thought of how james addresses the problem and how it was addressed in problem that really doesn't get to the root of the problem the problem is in the heart and uh whatnot but that was often used as a way to keep uh, the language healthy in our home that I grew up in. But let's look at some other of the proverbs of words and speech, and uh, uh, we'll start out with uh, some positive ones. One of my favorite is, is this comes from 1717, or excuse me, 177. A word aptly, the word uh, aptly is used in the more uh, modern translations. King James would use the word fitly. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. You may have seen that picture. Uh, uh, I drive uh, Landis's reefer and uh, coming up here in a few weeks in the fall, as soon as we get there, I'll be hauling a lot of apples to a lot of the different stores. And uh, there is nothing more beautiful than a golden, delicious, highly polished, golden delicious apple and if you can just think of a bowl full of those in a silver bowl and apparently Solomon at a given moment had that in front of him he saw that picture of beauty and he saw that as he linked it to words that are fitly fitly spoken another similar one is 2015 gold there is rubies in abundance but lips that speak knowledge are rare. I tend to be somebody who picks up on words and speech that are that flow from beneath what the person is speaking. Words that are another word that uh, I was used uh, used to with one of my mentors was a wordsmith. If you think of a a, uh, a smith who's a skilled skilled person uh, uh, dealing with uh, metal or something like that. A person who chooses words carefully and knows where to fit them in and how to say them at the right time with the right tone of voice and in the right setting. It's just a beautiful picture there that uh, Solomon picks up on. Another one, fifteen one, a gentle answer. We, you may have heard this one. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And that opens up for me a phrase that I've learned early in my career as a pastor, a non-anxious presence. One of my early pastoral supervisors put me onto a book called Generation to Generation, written by Ed Friedman, 
a Jewish rabbi. And since his death, the book has been rewritten by his think tank, uh, and it's titled A Failure of Nerve. And the key idea in this book is a non-anxious presence in the midst of anxiety. And so the question is, what does it mean to be a non-anxious presence in the midst of heightened anxiety and emotional toxicity to have your presence along with your words be able to de-escalate anger and uh, fear and uh, rage and, general, and anxiety in general? What's it, what's it mean? to train yourself in such a way to be a non-anxious presence in the midst of that environment. And that's what we live in today more than ever. Uh, just a practical illustration from that book, about six months ago, if you'll recall, there was a synagogue in, in uh, Pittsburgh where the rabbi was held captive along with a few of his parishioners or leaders or whatever for a number of hours. It may have been uh, maybe more than 24 hours or whatever. They were held hostage. And eventually uh, they were able, the, the law enforcement was on the outside, and eventually they were able to uh, de-escalate that situation. And uh, I believe the, uh, the hostage taker was shot in that situation. But anyway, the next day I happened to be listening to one of the major news services that interviewed the rabbi that was in charge and uh, asked him the question, how did you keep it all together there in that situation? And he used that word right there. He says, we have been trained to be a non-anxious presence. And just to think of the power of that in a situation like that. And for the last 32 years, I've been trying to learn and to hone that particular skill. Another one in 1523, Proverbs 15:23, a man finds joy in giving an apt, again, that word apt, or a fitting reply, and how good is a timely word. The key word there is, again, a fitting reply. What's it mean to be able to manage your words in such a way that you can choose words that fit the occasion in appropriate way and that the words are said in a timely way? They're, they're just at the right time and they have the ability to speak in, in loud kind of ways to the situation. Another one in 15, uh, 15, 4, chapter 15, verse 4, the tongue that brings healing is a tree of life. The, uh, these healing words and speech that flows from a heart that has been renewed by Jesus' redemptive work of salvation and a heart that is constantly refreshed and renewed by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life. These words and these, this speech brings healing to those who hear it and are open to hear. Again, the tongue that brings Healing is a tree of life, and the tree of life uh, uh, is used a number of times in the Bible and described in very descriptive, fertile, fruit-bearing ways and whatnot. What would it be like if our speech could be seasoned in that kind of way? But contrasted in that same proverb, contrasted with a deceitful tongue crushes the spirit. He, he talks and compares it 
to that way. There are cultural lies right now that are being told and promoted in our cultural right now in reality where we know is the untruth and serve as destructive political or a cultural narrative. And it's disheartening. It's disheartening to listen to that. And it crushes the spirit to listen to all of that. And I'm at the point, I, I, I don't like to watch the news anymore. I, I get discouraged. I get disheartened because it's built on so many lies that are being permeated in our culture. And that particular proverb um, illustrates all that. I'm going to skip over for the sake of time here. Gibson covered the other week the whole idea of fools. There is much speech and many proverbs that are attributed to, to, uh, to fools. Uh, I'll just give a list of them here that I picked out. 23.9, 15.7, and 10.8. Uh, uh, and... Uh, um, the one, I think, 10.8 we had talked about before at the outdoor service about a fool that just talks too much, a chattering fool comes to ruin and whatnot. But I, I make this note here, to understand some of these proverbs, we need to know the, the meaning and the behavior of a fool. And in the ESV, uh, the, in Proverbs, the word fool is used in Proverbs alone 40 different times. And in order to understand these Proverbs, we need to know the imply, implied cultural understanding and meaning of that day of that descriptive word, the word fool. And in many cases, according to Proverbs, a fool is identified by his or her speech. Now, Jesus says very clearly in Matthew, Matthew 5, we're not to call anybody a fool. But at the same time, I think the Scripture teaches we're to be able to recognize who is a fool and who is acting like a fool and who is speaking like a fool. And one of the and uh, just let me go over this list. Uh, in ten eight we have the chattering fool. In ten eighteen we have the fool that utters slander. In ten twenty three we have the fool that uh, uh, that doing wrong is a joke. Uh, uh, Proverbs talks about that. In twelve fifteen. Uh, a fool rejects the advice of others and only listens to himself. And in 15.5, a fool despises his father's instructions. Proverbs says, don't try and correct a fool. Don't argue a point with a fool. These conversations implied in general just go downhill. But learn to recognize a fool. Um, and as I said before, Jesus said, don't call anybody a fool. Jesus mentions that. But walk away and create proper boundaries in your relationships with them. When the emotions of anger and envy are driving your speech. Uh, we have a number of Proverbs that talk about envy. And... Um, uh, there's one particular, uh, and there's the theme of envy is personified in one of the Psalms, but I want to mention this. In 2317, don't let your heart envy sinners. We might take that for granted, uh, and I'll come to that in a minute. But always be zealous for the fear of the Lord. 
Don't, and let me say that again. Don't let your heart envy a sinner. And then 24.19, don't fret because of evil men or be envious of the wicked. For the evil man has no future hope and the lamp of the wicked. That's an interesting concept there. The lamp of the wicked will be snuffed out. The implication is that we all have a lamp within us that burns. And I could show you other scriptures. There's a few in Isaiah that talk about that as well. But when you envy the wealth or the, the good th things that the wicked have, it leads you in a, in a, down, a, down a, a bad way and, it, and your life will be snuffed out. Anyway, that is personified in Psalm 73. Uh, and that's an interesting chapter. And here the psalmist, in a moment of worship and celebration of the goodness of God, is reflecting on a time when he honestly is conflicted with the thoughts of, of the wicked. And he says he envied the arrogant, and he saw when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. Here's, here's a guy being incredibly honest with himself. And he says, I almost lost my spiritual footing and my faith in God. And he goes on in the chapter 73, uh, chapter 73, you can read that sometime this week, and he sees and he lists all the false benefits that they seem to have. And then all of a sudden, he sees reality in verse 16. He says, I tried to understand all this till I entered the sanctuary of God. And then and there, he said, I understood their end. When he came into worship, when he came into worship and had a new understanding of God and a new vision of God in his worship, he understood the end of the wicked. And, uh, and so envy and the seats and the uh, speech and words of, the, uh, of envy can destroy us. So anyway, I'd like to look at a couple passages and, and look uh, real closely at speech. And uh, uh, this seemed to be a better way uh, rather than uh, categorizing all the Proverbs. I just summarized a few of, the, uh, of, of them with you and, and whatnot. But I want to look at some stories that we have. So turn in your Bible to Numbers 20. There's an interesting story here. Um, and uh, there's, a, there's a lot of history beyond this, but I'll try to get you right here to the, this particular story. And this is on the end of the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Uh, if you remember, just quickly, if, if you don't have a good handle on that history, God was ready to, he had rescued the uh, Israelites out of Egypt, and uh, there was a few issues in there, uh, not having uh, water and uh, 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 not having food to eat, and so there was manna and whatnot, and then they were ready to go in, and they sent spies in, and they brought reports back of fear. There was giant in the land, giants in the land, and there were they were fearful, in, and created fear about going in and taking the land. And because of all that, uh, they spent forty years wandering in the wilderness. And and there is very little biblical content of the details that went on in that wilderness wandering. But it was not a good time, and the previous generation that had been rescued had all died off. 
except Joshua and Caleb and Moses and Aaron were the only four, I think, people that were left. And anyway, here at chapter 20, they're having another crisis. And if, you, if we had the time here today, in the preceding chapter, there's, there's some difficult things that have happened prior to this. And to put it in the vernacular, Moses has just about had it. And we have all been in situations like that where life has built up for us. We have gone through a season of difficulty and it's all we need is one more thing to happen. And that's exactly what the setting is here. And so they come and they have another episode where they were out of water. And the people are starting to quarrel with Moses. And there's a quote here in verse 3 of chapter 20. If only we had died with our brothers and fell dead. They're, they're getting ready to take on a gift that God has given them here. This is a new generation of people. These people knew nothing of the slavery of Egypt. All of those kinds of things. And, and they are starting to take on uh, Moses in all kinds of ways here. And, and uh, Moses and Aaron, uh, they went to the tent of meeting, where this is a place where they normally went with problems. And anyway, God responds to their problem. And I want to cover these details. They start in verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Take the staff. You remember his staff that he carried? That's the same staff that he struck the Red Sea and it parted with this miraculous. He says, take this. I want you to listen carefully. This. And you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. In other words, God is about to do an incredible miracle. And if you have your own Bible, I want you to circle the next word. Speak. That's what God says. Speak to the rock before their eyes, and I will pour out its water. God wanted to do a miracle. He wanted to see faith happen in that situation and whatnot. And you will bring, God gives them the promise right there, you will bring water out of the rock for the community so that their livestock can drink. He's going to resolve their problem. Moses, as I said, he has had it. We would have expressions in our culture that would be inappropriate for me to say over this pulpit. But let me maybe just say one that will pass here. He was ticked off right here. And I believe it's not recorded here, but we see it in the end result because judgment comes to Aaron as well. And I bet you Moses is telling Aaron, I am so sick of these people, I have had it up to here. Because the next words goes on, and he takes what he... So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he commanded. They gathered the people together in front of the rock, and Moses explodes right here. He says, listen to you rebel, listen you rebels, must we bring water out of this rock? And Moses raised his hand and rather than speaking to the rock, he takes his stick and whacks it twice. He's having a major, major 
temper tantrum. How many of us have been at that place? Life circumstances, situations have happened. We've gone through a season of pressure in certain situations, and all of a sudden, one more thing happens that sets us on edge. What I want us to see here is what happened. God immediately pulls, Abraham, uh, pulls Moses aside. And the NIV study notes, if you have an NIV study Bible, lives, gives four things there that happened. One, that his, his actions demonstrated a lack of trusting in God. Secondly, he believed, Moses believed that a word alone was insufficient to bring water out of the rock. And thirdly, his rash action offended God's holiness. If you are got your own personal Bible there, look what God says to Moses as, as, the, as the punishment here. Because you did not trust me enough to honor me in, in, in the sight of the Israelites, you will not, I will not bring you into the community. You personally will not go into the, the promised land. That's an incredible punishment for a guy who had given his life for a job he did not want for just exploding. And yet, if you think of our own lives personally, how many times we have come into situations where we have just blown up. And, and, uh, and look at the punishment here that God. And the best that he got was to stand on Mount Nebo. I was there back in 2014. Stood right at the place where Moses was. Unfortunately, it was a cloudy day, the day I had but about 40 meters, or 40, excuse me, 40, uh, 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 close to 25 miles, put it in mileage, away would have been the promised land or whatever. That's the best, that's the best he got because of this incident. And Aaron is included in that punishment as well. A second one I want us to look at um, uh, uh, is in Genesis 3. If you want to turn to that, this is a familiar story. It's the story of the fall. And uh, we see this dialogue that went on with Satan and with Eve about the fruit that they were not allowed to eat or not that God had given some uh, instructions. They could eat anything else that God had given except fruit from this one particular tree. And we also see there's this description of Eve there that as she saw the fruit, and she's in this dialogue, and remember in Proverbs we, we were taught too many words, too much chatter leads to ruin. And Eve is in this chattery relationship with Satan, and she's discovering that the fruit that they were not allowed to eat is, is good for the eye. It's, it's good for food, it's pleasing to the eye, and it's desirable for gaining wisdom. Those three things there are mentioned there. And, uh, and then... And, and then she took some and ate it. And then it says this incredible phrase, 
She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. When I read that, the whole creation is gone to hell right there at this moment. And Eve, or excuse me, Adam, doesn't say anything. Now, we've been warned in Proverbs about too many words and the danger of too many words. Here is a guy who is caught and he doesn't say anything at a key important moment. He needs to speak up. And again, I raise the question, how many of us have been in key places at key conversations and the conversation is building and we don't say anything. We don't speak up. We don't bring truth into the situation. There's a psychologist who I used to read a lot about, Larry Crabb, Dr. Larry Crabb, who wrote a whole book on this called The Silence of Adam. It's an incredible book to read. But let's suppose, let's just take this story, and let's suppose Adam would have jumped into this conversation with Eve and Satan. He was there. He was in the setting. This did not happen when he was out doing something else. He was there, the text tells us. But let's suppose he would have jumped into the conversation and echoed the words of God's instruction and disrupted Eve's deceived understanding that the food was food was good for that the fruit was good for fruit and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom and said that's not the way God instructed. What's suppose he would have? What if Adam would have said words of truth in that morning? There would have been more of a silence. Imagine the pillow talk that night in bed. If he would, if he would have spoke into that situation and 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 disrupted her big dream about these these this fruit. C.S. Lewis wrote a quote in his allegory of the great divorce. And it's, it goes like this, and it's written in the male context, but he, he's implying that it applies to men and women. But at the time when he wrote this in the 1940s, uh, he used the male and, uh, pronoun, but it goes like this. There's an ache within men and women that causes them to concede what they should not concede and to flatter when they ought to speak the truth. I've been in that trap so often. Let me repeat that again. There's an ache within men and women that causes them to concede what they should not concede and to flatter when they ought to speak the truth. In my premarital work in the last number of couples that I married, I used to talk about this and raise this question. In the course of your marriage, periodically, and you will know when these times are, what would it be like to disrupt the fake peace that is going on in the relationship for the purpose of speaking truth into your mutual lives, not to control or to manipulate, but for each other's ultimate good and for the good of the relationship. I've had a couple couples that were just waiting 
for that kind because they had a relationship that was built on pseudo-goodness and happiness. And when I gave them permission, I have one couple I can think of in particular who postponed their wedding twice because they had truth stuff that needed to be dealt with, that they were just not talking about. And other times that finally gave permission for one of them to bring some issue that was just not being talked about to bring it up together. One more thing in closing. This is a personal story. A couple of years ago, one of my sons, when one of my sons was doing some personal work, he initiated a conversation with me. And he brought up a time and he refreshed my memory and I didn't remember and neither of us could remember what the issue was about. But he brought up a time when he was a teenager where he said, Dad, he says, you were unusually harsh with me at this particular given time. And he says, later that evening, and he says, I was dealing with the pain of that. And he says, later that evening, I went to bed. And he says, you came up into my bedroom and you apologized and you asked for forgiveness. And he went on to tell me how freeing that was for him. A couple years ago, I came across an article and it was entitled, the power, the life-giving power of a parent saying, I'm sorry. And this author, her name is Jenny, Jenny Lisa. And uh, she writes a number of paragraphs decide, uh, describing how she, as a mom, just lost her temper and as at times was short-tempered with her kids and just said hurtful things to them just to get out of the situation. And then she writes, and I want to read these words that she writes, when our children are young, they believe mom and dad are infallible. As they mature, they realize their parents are actually deeply flawed and hypocritical. And when hypocritical parents hardly or ever seek forgiveness for their impatience, cutting words, temper, poor attitude, neglect, apathy, and mistreatment, their children are provoked. This could potentially breed resentment, distrust, feeling emotionally and physically unsaved, loss of respect, strain, and sometimes an unfortunate, an unfortunate severing of relationships. Hearing, I'm sorry, followed by a parent admitting wrongdoing is immeasurable, powerful gift for a child. It can liberate oneself from the imprisonment of pain, anger, and bitterness. It's an expression that mends and rebuilds broken relationships. But with, as all with good things, it takes effort. Seeking forgiveness can be costly. It requires humility, vulnerability, and casting aside pride. It says, I wronged you. I take responsibility for it. It says, I am counting you as more important than I at this moment. Seeking forgiveness 
has tremendous influence over our children who are often powerless when they are unjustly treated. When we admit the words, when we omit the words, I'm sorry, we omit the power of the gospel in our homes. If you're here today, you've never accepted Jesus Christ into your heart, never accepted Him as Savior, you can do that today. And you can change your living, change your way of living, and you can change your future. And you can talk to Pastor Gibson, you can fill out one of the cards that is in the chair in front of you, and somebody will contact you. But if you have accepted Jesus, but you're losing the battle of transformation in anger, frustration, bitterness, and unforgiveness rules your heart and spills out of your speech, and you're not experiencing the joy and the peace of the Spirit and are controlled and dominated by your sinful nature in your past life, you can rededicate yourself and recommit your life and have your heart removed. That's where the source of our speech is located, by confession, repenting, and refreshing yourself anew and afresh in the Spirit of God. Read the Proverbs and honestly find the place where God wants you to work. Romans 6, 7, and 8 will help you understand the battle of the flesh with your old life. Refresh yourself often in what Jesus has done for you. Celebrate His forgiveness. Seek forgiveness from others whom you have offended and recommit to go on. Let us pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for its power in our lives. And we admit as we journey in our journey that so often our speech betrays us and shows what is really in our lives. And so I pray that this moment and this time and this gathering here today, as we've looked into Your Word, we've looked at Proverbs and seen the warnings, we've also seen the good things that can happen from our lives when we can learn to appropriate good speech in the right time, in the right setting, with the right amount of words, and how powerful that can be. And so I pray that this time can be a time of renewal for each one of us. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.